Section 15 of Europe and Elsewhere by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Chapter 13 Letters to Satan, 1897. Swiss Glimpses. 1. If your grace would prepay your postage, it would be a pleasant change. I am not meaning to speak harshly but only sorrowfully. My remark applies to all my outland correspondents, and to everybody's. None of them puts on the full postage, and that is just the same as putting on none at all. The foreign governments ignore the half-postage, and we who are abroad have to pay full postage on those half-paid letters. And as for writing on thin paper, none of my friends ever think of it. They all use pasteboard, or sole leather, or things like that. But enough of that subject. It is painful. I believe you have set me a hard task, for if it is true, that you have not been in the world for three hundred years, and have not received into your establishment an educated person in all that time, I shall be obliged to talk to you as if you had just been born, and knew nothing at all about the things I speak of. However, I will do the best I can, and will faithfully try to put in all the particulars, trivial ones as well as the other sorts. If my report shall induce your grace to come out of your age-long seclusion and make a pleasure tour through the world in person, instead of doing it by proxy through me, I shall feel that I have labored to good purpose. You have many friends in the world, more than you think. You would have a vast welcome in Paris, London, New York, Chicago, Washington, and the other capitals of the world. If you would go on the lecture platform, you could charge what you pleased. You would be the most formidable attraction on the planet. The curiosity to see you would be so great that no place of amusement would contain the multitude that would come. In London many devoted people who have seen the Prince of Wales only fifteen hundred or two thousand times would be willing to miss one chance of seeing him again for the sake of seeing you. In Paris, even with the Tsar on view, you could do a fairly good business. And in Chicago, oh, but you ought to go to Chicago, you know. But uh, further of this anon, I will to my report now and tell you about Lucerne and how I journeyed hither for doubtless you will travel by the same route when you come. 
I kept house a few months in London with my family, while I arranged the matters which you were good enough to entrust me with. There were no adventures, except that we saw the Jubilee. Afterward I was invited to one of the Queen's functions, which was a royal garden party. A garden is a green and bloomy countrified stretch of land which but you remember the garden of eden well it is like that the invitation prescribed the costume that must be worn morning dress with trousers i was intending to wear mine for i always wear something at garden parties where ladies are to be present but i was hurt by this arbitrary note of compulsion and did not go all the european courts are particular about dress and you are not allowed to choose for yourself in any case you are always told exactly what you must wear and whether it is going to become you or not you are not allowed to make any changes yet the court taste is often bad and sometimes even indelicate i was once invited to dine with an emperor when i was living a while in germany and the invitation card named the dress i must wear frock coat and black cravat to put it in english that meant swallowtail and black cravat it was cold weather too the middle of winter and not only that but ladies were to be present that was five years ago by this time the coat has gone out i suppose and you would feel at home there if you still remember the old eden styles as soon as the jubilee was fairly over we broke up housekeeping and went for a few days to what is called in england an hotel if we could have afforded an horse and an hackney cab we could have had a heavenly good time flitting around on our preparation errands and could have finished them up briskly but the buses are slow and they wasted many precious hours for us a bus is a sort of great cage on four wheels and is six times as strong and eleven times as heavy as the service required of it demands but that is the english of it the bus aptly symbolizes the national character the englishman requires that everything about him shall be stable strong and permanent except the house which he builds to rent his own private house is as strong as a fort the rod which holds up the lace curtains could hold up an hippopotamus the three-foot flagstaff on his bus which supports a union jack the size of a handkerchief would still support it if it were one of the gates of gaza everything he constructs is a deal heavier and stronger than it needs to be he built 
ten miles of terraced benches to view the jubilee procession from and put timber enough in them to make them a permanent contribution to the solidities of the world yet they were intended for only two days service when they were being removed an american said don't do it save them for the resurrection if anything gets in the way of the englishman's bus it must get out of it or be bowled down and that is english it is the serene self-sufficient spirit which has carried his flag so far he ought to put his aggressive bus in his coat of arms and take the gentle unicorn out we made our preparations for switzerland as fast as we could then bought the tickets bought them of thomas cook and sons of course nowadays shortened to cooks to save time and words things have changed in thirty years i can remember when to be a cook's tourist was a thing to be ashamed of and when everybody felt privileged to make fun of cook's personally conducted gangs of economical provincials but that has all gone by now all sorts and conditions of men fly to cook in our days in the bygone times travel in europe was made hateful and humiliating by the wanton difficulties hindrances annoyances and vexations put upon it by ignorant stupid and disobliging transportation officials and one had to travel with a courier or risk going mad you could not buy a railway ticket on one day which you proposed to use next day it was not permitted you could not buy a ticket for any train until fifteen minutes before that train was due to leave though you had twenty trunks you must manage somehow to get them weighed and the extra weight paid for within that fifteen minutes if the time was not sufficient you would have to leave behind such trunks as failed to pass the scales if you missed your train your ticket was no longer good as a rule you could make neither head nor tail of the railway guide and if your intended journey was a long one you would find that the officials could tell you little about which way to go consequently you often bought the wrong ticket and got yourself lost but cook has remedied all these things and made travel simple easy and a pleasure he will sell you a ticket to any place on the globe or all the places and give you all the time you need and as much more besides and it is good for all trains of its class and its baggage is weighable at all hours it provides hotels for you everywhere if you so desire 
and you cannot be overcharged, for the coupons show just how much you must pay. Cook's servants at the great stations will attend to your baggage, get you a cab, tell you how much to pay cabmen and porters, procure guides for you, or horses, donkeys, camels, bicycles, or anything else you want, and make life a comfort and a satisfaction to you. And if you get tired of traveling and want to stop, Cook will take back the remains of your ticket with ten percent off. Cook is your banker everywhere, and his establishment your shelter when you get caught out in the rain. His clerks will answer all the questions you ask, and do it courteously. I recommend your grace to travel on Cook's tickets when you come, and I do this without embarrassment, for I get no commission. I do not know Cook, but if you would rather travel with a courier, let me recommend Joseph Verry. I employed him twenty years ago, and spoke of him very highly in a book, for he was an excellent courier. Then, I employed him again six or seven years ago for a while. Try him, and when you go home, take him with you. That London hotel was a disappointment. It was up a back alley, and we supposed it would be cheap, but no, it was built for the moneyed races. It was all costliness and show. It had a brass band for dinner, and little else, and it even had a telephone and a lift. A telephone is a wire stretched on poles or underground, and has a thing at each end of it. These things are to speak into and to listen at. The wire carries the words. It can carry them several hundred miles. It is a time-saving, profanity-breeding, useful invention, and in America is to be found in all houses except parsonages. It is dear in America, but cheap in England. Yet in England telephones are as rare as are icebergs in your place. I know of no way to account for this. I only know that it is extraordinary. The English take kindly to the other modern conveniences, but for some puzzling reason or other they will not use the telephone. There are forty-four million people there who have never even seen one. The lift is an elevator. Like the telephone, it also is an American invention. Its office is to hoist people to the upper stories and save them the fatigue and delay of climbing. That London hotel could accommodate several hundred people, and it had just one lift, a lift which would hold four persons. 
In America such an hotel would have from two to six lifts. When I was last in Paris three years ago, they were using there what they thought was a lift. It held two persons and traveled at such a slow gait that a spectator could not tell which way it was going. If the passengers were going to the sixth floor, they took along something to eat, and at night bedding. Old people did not use it, except such as were on their way to the good place, anyhow. Often people that had been lost for days were found in those lifts, jogging along, jogging along, frequently still alive. The French took great pride in their ostensible lift, and called it by a grand name, Ascenseur. An hotel that had a lift did not keep it secret, but advertised it in immense letters, Il y a un ascenseur, with three exclamation points after it. In that London hotel, but never mind that hotel, it was a cruelly expensive and tawdry and ill-conditioned place, and I wish I could do it a damage. I will think up away some time. We went to Queenborough by the railroad. A railroad is a... well, a railroad is a railroad. I will describe it more explicitly another time. Then we went by steamer to Flushing, eight hours. If you sit at home, you can make the trip in less time, because then you can travel by the steamer company's advertisement, and that will take you across the channel five hours quicker than their boats can do it. Almost everywhere in Europe the advertisements can give the facts several hours odd in the twenty-four and get in first. 2. We tarried overnight at a summer hotel on the seashore near Flushing, the Grand Hotel des Bains. The word grand means nothing in this connection. It has no descriptive value. On the continent all hotels, inns, taverns, hash-houses, and slop-troughs employ it. It is tiresome. This one was a good enough hotel and comfortable, but there was nothing grand about it but the bill, and even that was not extravagant enough to make the title entirely justifiable, except in the case of one item, scotch whiskey. I ordered a sup of that, for I always take it at night as a preventative of toothache. I have never had a toothache, and what is more, I never intend to have it. They charged me a dollar and a half for it, a dollar and a half for half a pint, a dollar and a half for that wee little mite, 
really hardly enough to break a pledge with. It will be a kindness to me if your grace will show the landlord some special attentions when he arrives, not merely on account of that piece of extortion, but because he got us back to town and the station next day more than an hour before train time. There were no books or newspapers for sale there, and nothing to look at but a map. Fortunately, it was an interesting one. It was a railway map of the low countries, and was of a new sort to me, for it was made of tiles, the ground white, the lines black. It could be washed if it got soiled, and if no accident happens to it, it will last ten thousand years and still be as bright and fine and new and beautiful than as it is today. It occupied a great area of the wall, and one could study it in comfort halfway across the house. It would be a valuable thing if our own railway companies would adorn their waiting rooms with maps like that. We left at five in the afternoon. The Dutch road was admirably rough. We went bumping and bouncing and swaying and sprawling along in a most vindictive and disorderly way, then passed the frontier into Germany, and straightway quieted down and went gliding as smoothly through the landscape as if we had been on runners. We reached Cologne after midnight. But this letter is already too long. I will close it by saying that I was charmed with England and sorry to leave it. It is easy to do business there. I carried out all of your grace's instructions and did it without difficulty. I doubted if it was needful to grease Mr. Cecil Rhodes' palm any further, for I think he would serve you just for the love of it. Still I obeyed your orders in the matter. I made him permanent general agent for South Africa, got him and his South Africa company whitewashed by the Committee of Inquiry, and promised him a dukedom. I also continued the European concert in office without making any change in its material. In my opinion, this is the best material for the purpose that exists outside of your grace's own personal cabinet. It coddles the sultan. It has defiled and degraded Greece, it has massacred a hundred thousand Christians in Armenia, and a splendid multitude of them in Turkey, and has covered civilization and the Christian name with imperishable shame. If your grace would instruct me to add the concert to the list of your 
publicly acknowledged servants, I think it would have a good effect. The foreign offices of the whole European world are now under your sovereignty, and little attentions like this would keep them so. End of chapter 13 Letters to Satan Read by John Greenman